Okay, well this summer we've been looking at the faith stories of different characters, quite surprising people really, that God uses at the beginning of uh, this great, glorious, beautiful salvation story of his. And that's why we've called the series Kingdom Beginnings. And so far in Genesis, we've seen creation, Genesis 1, this beautiful garden temple, and like the nations of the time of Moses' writing, we see this image produced of God, not wood or carved writing, uh, sorry, carved stone, um, but living, breathing people who bear the image of God. First, Adam, humanity's firstborn. And only when Eve comes along is it then very good. A few amens from the women out there. But then, Genesis 3, sin comes along. Adam and Eve listen to the whispers of the serpent. They don't trust in the word of God, but go their own way. And it's an ongoing disaster after that. Outside the garden, outside that first temple. And so eventually God brings judgment upon the earth through Noah and this great flood in Genesis 6 through 9. But even at the end of Noah's life, we see signs that actually he's a mess as well. And then subsequent generations are even worse. It's spoiled. And so a recreation plan begins, a salvation plan, a, a story that we get to track all the way through. And it begins with a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And we see these glorious promises in Genesis 12 and 15 where Abraham's family line is to be so numerous that they're like the sands on the seashore, that they're uncountable like the stars in the sky. Abraham and Sarah finally, with a lot of struggle, have kids, first Isaac, and he married Rebecca. But that is not the success story at this point that you might imagine it to be. They're married age 40, produce just two sons. Compared to his brother, Isaac's brother, Ishmael, who had 12 sons. But now Esau, Isaac and Rebekah's firstborn, the one with the birthrights, oh, he looks quite impressive. This guy looks like he could be the real deal. I mean, he's strong, he's a fighting man, and even a fighting man from birth. So we're picking up the story of Esau today, and we're beginning in Genesis 25. But before we get to the story in Genesis, we're going to go to one of the two New Testament passages which are about Jacob and Esau. Next week, we'll look at the one in Romans. This week, we're looking at the one in Hebrews. We're in chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. So if you have a Bible with you, if you're unfamiliar with where Hebrews is, it's near the end of the Bible, even though... We're looking at the story in Genesis. Bear with, you'll see what's going to happen. It says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. 
even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what had been done. And then we're going to go right back to the beginning. Genesis 25, first book of the Bible. And we'll begin in verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is it? Is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau was born to fight. His fighting spirit begins in Rebekah's womb. He's literally this born fighter. No, and, and actually, in many ways, we're all warring people, born fighters. Every fight is a break from shalom, the peace of God. It's a genesis, there's a kind of Genesis 3 root to it. It's a fight to survive, it's a fight to succeed. The instinct is now to admire and envy those who fight hard in life. And of course, warring brothers, it's not really a surprise to many people, is it? I'm sure some of you will have heard those screams from upstairs, I hate you. Sibling rivalry, is something that many of us may have become familiar with. And actually there is this kind of fraternal rivalry that we see throughout Genesis. This is already fraternal rivalry number three. The first one was Cain and Abel, that first generation after Adam and Eve. And the second, Ishmael and Isaac, the first generation after this recreation nation that we are supposed to see emerge from the line of Abraham. And now it continues. What did we say last week? Sin multiplies. And so this is the fourth 
Uh, sorry, this is the third. And the fourth will be the 12 sons of Jacob, who we looked at a bit last week. It says something, doesn't it, of the willingness to cut each other down, to get just this bigger slice of the pie in life. These warring brothers in Genesis represent a much bigger fight. War between nations begins inside Rebecca. That's what God told her, verse 23. When kicking was no longer cute but painful, she looks to, to God and says, what's going on? And there's this horrendous divide that God tells her about. Esau, his nickname describes the Edomites. His nickname was Edom. And it's actually a thousand years until the Edomites are defeated properly by Israel. It's not until the time of David. So what begins in the womb causes quite a problem. Conditions for brotherly affection, okay, they're not great, are they? But Isaac and Rebecca hardly help. Favoritism makes things worse. These two parents are supposed to reverse the rivalry by equally loving these two, but actually they throw their own grenades into it. Isaac fighting for Esau and Rebecca for Jacob. And Esau, he's the winner from the beginning. He wins, he jostles to become firstborn. He gets the rights. And Jacob's kind of grasping his heel behind him. I mean, of course, he wins the fights, right? He comes out big, hairy, and ginger. He's going to win the fight. He's got the ginger rave. Rage. Rave. Rage. Don't know what the ginger rave is. Sounds fun. And, it, and he overflows, doesn't he, with testosterone. Testosterone. I'll start speaking properly in a minute. A baby appears from the womb already looking like he's ready for a fight. Now, if he was born here, of course, his name would be Hamish. There's no way that he could be anything else. And I'm not talking kind of Ponzi Hamish, you know, the new type of Hamish that's born in Bear's Den. I'm, I'm talking like hard Hamish with Highlander parents, you know, that kind of Hamish. Esau and Jacob, they come out of the same womb, but they're worlds apart. Esau is a man's man. He's big, he's muscular, he's bearded. He's that kind of guy who's got all the banter. He's a man's man, people love him. And actually he's only found indoors, I think, probably to eat, sleep or watch the game. He's sickeningly good at DIY skills. And uh, he's found in the evenings smoking some meat with a pale ale in hand. He owns a room and he exerts his power with his presence, his physical presence. Jacob, he likes indoor activities. I expect he has follicle envy like I do of Esau. And he, he's a Star Wars fan probably. Generally just loves sci-fi, salivates over it, and he's found wittering away the small hours on some online forum somewhere. And he looks to exert his power through board game victories, passive aggression, and general know-it-all one-upmanship. You know the types. 
In a patriarchal and tribal world, Esau was the one everyone was impressed by. The strong firstborn, daddy's favourite, with the willingness to fight to reach the top. He actually looks hopeful for Abraham's line. Admirable, even. Could, it could be the start, the kickstart that project recreation through God's chosen nation really needs. And he's not just born to fight, he's hungry to win. Beginning in verse 27, the story centers around Jacob's deception and Esau's foolishness. And Esau, being our focus this week, is winning at life. Partly, it seems, because he has this insatiable appetite to make the best of life. He sees the here and now opportunities and he takes them. Here's a winner. Something our culture thinks is virtuous. Grab life by the horns. It's to be emulated. Exemplified by the story, Esau bursts in demanding this stew that Jacob's made. A favourite, another reason he's known as Edom, according to verse 20. There's a Bible commentator, Skinner, who said that this was a coarse expression suggesting bestial veracity. (laughs) He's not just hungry, he's entitled and rude. Jacob, he was a schemer. And he's got a plan coming together in his head. He's ready to pounce. Verse 31, first, sell me your birthright. Now, if Esau had his wits about him here and he trusted in God's promises, he'd be horrified by the suggestion. But his reaction tells us everything. Look, I'm about to die. What good is this birthright to me? I mean, he's clearly not going to die. It's hyperbole, isn't it? Like us, I'm starving to death over here. Why are we waiting? John Calvin preaching on this passage said of Esau in a sermon in 1549 that he sold his birthright like it was a playful thing, a childish game. He's only concerned about the immediate benefit to him. He was so captivated by the things of the world that he gave everything to immediately being gratified and missing the greatest gift any person living in 2000 BC could receive. A leading part in God's salvation story. Destined not only with the inheritance of Isaac, but the blessing of God. He was missing out on the glory of God to come because he was so distracted by what was in front of him. No wonder the writer to the Hebrews calls him godless. Because for a single meal, he sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Maybe you think a little bit like Esau sometimes. You think some of us are a bit intense about all this God stuff. Faith is just one part of life. Just chill, man. You find yourself asking, what practical use is the Bible and church to me? What is it going to do in my life now? And if 
you're not satisfied with the answer, you just wander off and do something else. You switch it off, you don't bother. You base your decisions on what you did, you want to do at the weekend, not around God and his people. But what looks most fun? What practical benefit, what immediate gratification would cause you to deny God's blessing? This appetite for instant gratification, I don't think is, is less tempting in our day. I think it's more tempting. Entertainment is available at all times. I mean, at the end of your arm is a computer more complex than all of the computers that were used to send the first people to space. Average screen time at the moment is up at six, the six-hour mark in the UK every day. That's 75% of people's waking days. I'm actually a little bit dubious about that because I think people are awake for longer than that. Are you dubious about that? I am. That's what, that's what the stats told me. Some of us can't even go to the toilet without bringing our phones. Like Esau, we expect our food to be fast. We don't grow and prepare veg very often anymore, do we? I was um, uh, out for lunch in Loch Winnick this week and I got... Oh, Kilmacombe, I'm so sorry. I mix up Kilmacombe and Loch Winnick all the time. I was out in Kilmacombe. It's very near Loch Winnick. <laughs> and uh, Esther and Jonathan gave me a lettuce to take away that they had produced in their own garden. How many of us are doing that? Not very many. That takes patience diligence. We just expect things to be there on our plates, ready for us. Sometimes we just go to the, the golden arches and press a button on a screen and get whatever we want, Big Mac, McFlurry, as soon as we want it. We don't butcher our meat and sometimes all we do is hit that button on our phone or whatever, and it turns up half an hour later. Jacob sees the vulnerability of his foolish brother, who is just besotted with all this instant gratification. And he presses further still. And this time, it's an oath, a serious thing. But Esau is so committed to devouring what's in front of him, he just agrees, binding himself to this oath. Jacob is the kind of guy that might appreciate a chess analogy, so I'm going to give it, for, give it to him. He has Esau at check. It's not checkmate yet. It's only check because he needs the true blessing of the patriarchal line, and that's still to come. He needs Isaac. So turn with me to Genesis 27. Two chapters on, and we'll begin in verse 30 to see what happens. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from the hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry 
and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and made all his relatives his his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the, new, from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Decades later, Jacob's in poor health, he's dying, and the passage just before the one we read there, Rebecca overhears Isaac saying to Esau, hunt, bring back food, and I'll give you my blessing. And so Rebecca begins scheming with her favorite Jacob. An elaborate plan comes together between them. Rebecca prepared this tasty food and Jacob dressed up in goat skin so that he was hairy and more like his brother Esau. And then he went pretending to be Esau to his blind father. And it worked. Old blind Isaac takes a bait and he blesses with an almighty blessing. The whole shebang. Nothing else to spare for anyone. And so by the time the real Esau stood up, he offered game, and it was too late. When Isaac told Esau with violent trembling, verse 34, Esau burst out with a loud and bitter cry. Checkmate. Jacob had grasped hold of Esau's blessing. At some point, everyone must face the reality that what the world offers is ultimately empty, boring, and there's nothing in comparison to the joy of knowing God. What looks great, what you think is satisfying you, is actually killing you. Dane Ortland, author of a great little book, if you haven't read it, called Gentle and Lowly, And he writes this in another book about a Puritan named Jonathan Edwards. He says, By far the greatest functional heresy is to believe that holiness is boring and lustful selfishness is fun. It was too late for Esau. And when he realizes, it leaves him broken, deflated, and defeated. This winner, this fighter, is left with bitter cries. This is the time of God's blessing that we live in now. The blessing was over. It was too late for Esau. But it's not too late for us. 
Paul writes to the church in Corinth, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the era of the church. We're in that same era, that same time. The time for blessing is now. But one day there will be a time when it is gone. And it could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. The writer to the Hebrews describes Esau's foolishness as allowing a bitter root to grow. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We need to be super careful about this bitter root. The text is really clear about that. But what is it? And how do we make sure it doesn't grow? I don't want that to grow. Sounds awful. To understand, we actually need to go to Deuteronomy 29, 18 the law where God says make sure there is no man or woman clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison so did you see that what causes this bitter root to grow is to go away from the Lord and worship elsewhere the bitterness Esau experiences when he misses the blessing is that that production of a root that's been growing for years he doesn't realize it but because he's been so enamored with the world and because he's just been gobbling up everything that he could as quickly as he could so besotted by it that he was missing the glory of the of the Lord and a bitter root was growing up in him so that when the time came, when the blessing was, was right there and he, he could have it, that he denied it, he turned away from it, he despised it. And it's only when it's too late, when he sees that the blessing can't be his, when he sees how empty life is without God's blessing, does he realize that this bitter, bitter root has blinded him his whole life? blinded him to the glory of God, blinded him, to, blinded him to the goodness of God. He thinks it's boring. Why does he think it's boring? Because this bitter root has blinded him. Do not allow the bitter root of instant gratification, of believing that there's more joy and fun for you in the world than there is in God. It's a lie. And when it grows in you, it will only produce a bitter fruit. And that bitter fruit is a pill you don't want to swallow. It's a fruit you don't want to eat. And of course, that ultimate separation away from God, not receiving that blessing. What are we talking about? Let's be really explicit. It's hell. Verses 39 and 40, the curse spoken over Esau by Isaac, something that Isaac doesn't want to speak over him, but he has to because there's no blessing left for him. And without the blessing and, from, and when you're separated from the blessing of God, this is what it looks like. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And this can't just be written off as Old Testament. Nothing should be written off that way anyway. 
Every word of the Old Testament helps us to see Jesus more clearly. In fact, this blessing is available to Esau, that's available to Esau, is offered to us in a far fuller way through Jesus. And Jesus is clear. The New Testament has a choice too, a new covenant that we can enter into. To choose Jesus is to choose the way, the truth, the life. He's the only way. It's not possible to serve both. You either choose Jesus and follow him with all your heart, or you choose the world. It's not possible to serve them both. There is no third checkbox. Both. No, it's not there. Matthew records five times in his gospel, Jesus saying, warning, about weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the kind of bitterness that Jacob is expressing. I'm sorry, Esau is expressing. The devouring of instant and temporary things leads to our, our own imprisonment. It's never ending. And its desires and come downs after consumption are brutal. True freedom can only come in everlasting relationship with God. And to follow Jesus is to trust in his life for blessing, not ours. Praise God, if, if it were down to me, I'd be in serious trouble. I'd look more like proud and deceitful Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau than Jesus. But Jesus is not like Esau or Jacob. Instead of gobbling up all instant gratification available to him, he denied himself and gave himself up for us. Men, quick note for men here. If we want to discover true masculinity, the gym, the tattoo parlor, or, be, or kind of looking like a UFC fighter is not going to help us. Nor does the inflation of knowledge, the collecting of degrees or being rich. It is to hide in the greatest man who has ever lived, who was gentle and lowly, humble in heart, meek, not looking to domineer, but to lay himself down for his bride, to become like him who took on his responsibilities like no other. Not self-interested, but interested in the gain of others. That is true masculinity. It's actually true humanity. But if you really want to discover what it means to be a man, there it is. Don't chase all these stupid dreams. Your muscles will waste away. Your intellect will fail. You'll stop remembering things. But in Jesus you have something sure. Through him laying himself down for you, we must be humble and come to Christ. Colossians 1 is going to help us to see how this all comes full circle, this recreation project. If you have Bible, turn with me to Colossians 1 and we'll read verses 15 through 20. It says, There's the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is the true firstborn. And through his death and resurrection, the firstborn of project recreation. Not in the image of God in a temple, but God himself pouring out his spirit on us so that we might enter into his presence. He won for us his eternal blessing, the birthrights of God's one and only son. He died so we could die with him on that cross. He gave himself up so we could give up the insatiable desires of the flesh and live in the freedom of Christ's way to the glory of God. That's what we're made for. And it can only happen through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Esau was born to fight, hungry to win, and yet was destined to fail. He looked like a winner in the world, but he ends up outside of God's blessing. He was enticed by the immediacy of the world's trappings. They blinded him to the glory and the wonder of God and his blessings. And so, without even realizing, this bitter root grew within him. And by the time he realized, it was too late. In other words, by your choices now, you could be creating a better route that means you are blind. And when that time comes, you're on your deathbed, you think, oh, maybe in that moment I'll give my life to Jesus. No, <laughs> you're going to be so blind by this bitter root by then, producing such bitter fruit that you will taste the fruit that is not heavenly, but is hellish, separated from God. It isn't too late for you now. Don't be fooled by the world. And instead, fix your eyes on Jesus, God's one and only Son, who gave himself up for you.